Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world and thus making the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on Wiradjuri country and this podcast is brought to you from Turrbal and Yagara country. I'd like to recognise the first Australian's custodianship of this country for tens of thousands of years and their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to elders past, present and emerging. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. To the conscious horse people who came before me to lead the way. To those who stand beside me in our community now. And for those who will continue after we are long gone. I'd like to say thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. If you'd like to support the podcast and all the work that Lauren and I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up. From as little as a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep this podcast going. There are many tiers that you can choose from. And if everyone who listens gave only $5 a month, it would make a massive positive difference to me. There is a tier in there for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each podcast episode. Peter works with equine behaviour and trauma recovery, equine communication and human and horse relationship building. Peter has had communication with my mare Gypsy, who was the mare with me in the podcast picture. And he was spot on about everything in there and he helped me a lot. So I can highly recommend his work personally. Peter has also helped some of the listeners of this podcast, all of those who speak very highly of his work. You can contact Peter by looking him up on Facebook under Peter and the Herd, or you can go to the show notes and follow the links there. In this episode, I speak with Alexandra Curland. Alex is one of the first people in the world over 30 years ago to bring clicker training to the horse world. In this 30 years, she has refined her methods and learned to teach humans in a way that horses love. She is such an amazing teacher, as you will hear. Alex says her ability to teach was taught to her by the horses she has worked with. They all taught her to step back, break it down and take her time and to not be afraid to take it right back to the beginning if need be. As you can imagine, as one of the originals in the horse world, her wealth of knowledge of clicker training is extraordinary. I am so pleased to be able to bring you this conversation with a true legend of her field. Here is Alex. Alex, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, it's it's my pleasure to be with you, yes. It has been a long time coming and I've been so excited to talk to you. Um, But first of all, for those who don't recognize your name, uh, please let us know a little bit about what it is that you do. Well, I teach clicker training. So I'm one of the uh, early pioneers in bringing clicker training into the horse world. So back in 1993, quite a long time ago, I had the very good fortune of stumbling across uh, a mention of clicker training. And for those who aren't familiar with clicker training, uh, if you think about 
marine mammal shows, for example, and how marine mammals are trained. So uh, you can picture uh, an animal that is swimming in a tank and you can't put a bridle on it, you can't put a halter on it. How are you going to train this animal? Well, what the marine mammal trainers did is they reached back into some of the science that was coming out of B.F. Skinner's laboratories and from his graduate students and they started to apply a marker signal a yes answer signal a cue that tells the animal orient to me and i'm going to um uh give you a reinforcer so it's it's saying when you hear this sound or see this signal uh, if you will you you know that you've just done something that I really like, and now I'm going to give you a treat. So with the horses, we've uh, and and with the dogs, what they started to use was a little plastic clicker. So Karen Pryor, who was one of the very early pioneers in clicker training, uh, she coined the term clicker training because they were using to make the signal for land animals. They were making a, the signal with a little plastic toy clicker, a little uh, plastic device with a metal tongue. And when you press it, it makes a sharp clicking sound. Uh, and with the marine mammals, they would use a whistle. If you have uh, a deaf animal, you might have a hand signal. So the, the signal that you use itself is not that relevant. But if you are using a marker signal, and you are pairing that with positive reinforcement, essentially you are using clicker training. I use a tongue click because that leaves my hands free to do other things, and I always have my tongue with me, but especially in cold weather, I might not know where the little plastic clicker is. So I use a tongue click, and my horses know that signal, they recognize it, they know that uh, when they hear that, if they um, go into their treat retrieving mode, which might be just standing beautifully still, or it might be stepping forward a couple of steps because they can see from me that I'm going to be delivering the treat at a, a couple of steps forward or a couple of steps back. And then I reach into my pocket and I give them a treat. And because I've just reinforced that behavior, it makes it more likely that it's going to occur again. So it's a just wonderful, wonderful way to train. Our animals become such enthusiastic learners. They love the training. And it's very kind. It's very humane. You don't have to shout at your animals. You don't have to get loud with uh, swinging lead ropes at them or doing any of the other things that we sometimes have been taught to do with our horses. You can just be very conversational you can be a really good teacher and you can you can teach really anything that you want mm -hmm. so it's a great training method yeah and growing and, and i've yeah and i've had the good fortune as i say of i stumbled across it in 1993 when it was not part of the horse training world uh, my own horse really enjoyed it and I started sharing it with my clients. And we, uh, we all just got more and more curious and excited by what you could do with it. And so I just kept exploring it. And here, what, almost 
25 plus years on, we're still uh, feeling like we're just at the beginning point of what you can teach with clicker training. It's wow. such an exciting field. Mm. Yeah. And so you grew up with horses. So you said your horse, yeah. So how, d- what were you doing before that? Can you tell us the story of your story with your horse before you well, found I was, clicker training? With I came into clicker training with a uh, with a background. I was learning classical dressage from Bettina Drummond, who was one of Nuno Olivero's principal students. I was also learning John Lyon's work, and I was also uh, a team practitioner. So three very different, very different backgrounds. One from, you know, Linda was really softer than soft with horses. Uh, Lyons um, is a master of the use of negative reinforcement, but very skilled at splitting behaviors down. But I would say polar opposite, you know, in terms of uh, some of the techniques that he would use compared with Linda's and then with the classical work, that was another influence again. So very different influences, which I was able to weave together. And my focus, my interest is in balance. It's in using whatever training I am exploring. It's using that to help the horses come into their own good balance so that they can stay comfortable, they can stay sound for not just a season or two, but for decades. That uh, good riding should help horses to become sounder. And so at the core of clicker training, at the core of what I've developed in terms of a clicker training program is good balance. And it's a sense of, and it's good balance isn't just physical, but it's emotional. You know, it's, you have to have the emotional well-being of the horse as well as the physical well-being. So, yeah. Have you tried it? Are you familiar with, have you, have you explored clicker training? Yes, I am. I am. I'm, ah, a, I'm a bit excellent. of a, I'm a bit of a mixer upper, feel into your body and uh, and do what's there at the time. A lot of times, I don't require it with my horses at the moment. Um, if there's something new, I I do use it. So I'm a bit of a, um, and and that's more to do with what my body's telling me. If my connection is there with my horse, I don't need it a lot. And sometimes. When I'm teaching something new, I like to bring it in. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a mixer-upper, but um, I am still finding my way after interviewing, oh, I'm up to episode 80-something now of people in the world, and a lot of them are clicker trainers and some of them aren't. I, I really love the, um, the the flow and the mix of, of trying different things with my horses and um and they enjoy it too for some crazy reason. That's probably why yes. they're my horses. <laughs> they're like, well, well, that, that, she's going to change it up and try lots of different things and we'll all figure it out together. That, that relates to the, what's referred to as the generative theory of creativity. Oh. So if I know, if I have uh, in my repertoire, if I have A, let's say, and then I also have B, I have those two choices. And I can combine them to create A and B. So I can, I have three things that I could explore. But that's it. That's my universe. But mm-hmm. if somebody comes along 
with C, then think of all the possibilities that now can be created. So I have A or B or C, but I also have A, B, and C and AC and BC. And so the possibility for combining that into something which feels and really is very brand new and may be even better than uh, what I had before becomes very real. Mm-hmm. So, so we, shouldn't, we shouldn't feel as though we have to stay restricted to, well, this is this is the program. This is Alexandra Curlin's program, and I must not add anything to it. It's like, no, I'm always adding things to it. So, so of course, every you know, you should as well. But what we want to do is stay true to a core belief system. So, um, I when I talk, I'm teaching people and introducing clicker training to somebody who's brand new to it. I talk about there there are three layers to every training system. And every training system has these three three layers. You, they, they may not be uh, recognized, people may not be talking about them, but they're there. And, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about something as soft as the Linda Tellington Jones's teamwork or something that's uh, a much more um, command-based, do it, or, do it now, or, or else type of training. They they all have those three layers, and the first layer is your belief system. And when I was uh, really growing up and first encountering the the broader horse world, the belief system that I ran into in my first instructor, and this was not something that was subtle. It wasn't something that I had to search around and try and figure out how he felt about horses. He loved horses. But what he said, said, was, you know, horses are stupid animals. Hmm. And, but be, and because they're stupid animals, you need to use force sometimes to train them. But don't worry, dear. And it was always said in that patronizing tone. Don't worry, dear. They don't feel pain the way we do. Oh. <gasps> And I'm sure we've, you know, if you've been in the horse world very long, you've heard that, you know, oh, they don't feel pain the way we do. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to, you know, to do, you know, you fill in the blanks. I don't want to create the images, but, mm. uh, you know, if, if you go to any tax store in the country, you will see evidence of that belief system. In the world, yeah, absolutely. In the world, mm-hmm. right. So it's not, it wasn't something that was unique to this particular individual it's unique to our culture animals are do not have the feelings that we have they don't have the rich emotional life they're not intelligent you know this is the belief system that's out there and out of that belief system emerges a set of principles and out of those principles emerge the methods that people choose to use well my belief system was always very different. Even though I was learning from many of these people, I knew that my belief system did not match up with this. And I was so anchored in my belief system that I wasn't trying to do backflips to make myself conform to what they were telling me. So my belief system is very sentimental. You know, I'm, 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 would say absolutely I'm a sentimental trainer 
And my belief system is that horses are intelligent animals and they deserve to be treated with great, with great uh, kindness and fairness. Mm. And, and out of that evolves a set of principles. So, you know, safety always comes first for both the horse and the handler. Well, that's common to many training methods. It's absolutely at the core of what I teach. Safety always comes first. And then there are other principles that are also very common to good training. Things like um, uh, you can't ask for something and expect to get it on a consistent basis unless you've gone through a teaching process to teach it to your horse. Now, we've all heard the stories of you've, you've bought a, a horse and it's, maybe your horse is 12 years old and you expect this horse to know certain things, like to know how to pick up its feet for cleaning. Only this horse doesn't because in its previous life, foot care wasn't a high priority. So it really doesn't know this, um, how to pick up his feet. So you have to go through a teaching process. You can't just assume that the horses know things. And that, that sentence, it's very long, it's very cumbersome, but it'll get you out of a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, and, and teaching process. Well, a teaching process can be anything. It could be, okay, my horse won't load onto this trailer or float if we're going to, um, since this, since this is an Australian podcast, we'll call it a float. Um, <laughs> well, it's both. Uh, so we go worldwide. Yes, yeah. That's right. We'll do both. Um, uh, so we'll cut. So this it won't. This this horse does not want to go into this strange metal container. Yes, that's that. what I, every time. And, every time yes. I do, even yesterday going to school pickup because I live in a slightly rural area. There's somebody bringing the horse in the float to do school pickup, and I'm like every single time I'm like, my God, the things they do for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <sighs> so so you have a horse that doesn't want to load. Well, you think of. You know, we've all been there. You've been at a show or a clinic, your horse isn't loading, and all the helpers come out of the woodwork. <laughs> you know, oh, I could get the trailer, your, that your horse on the trailer. Let me go get the brooms, <laughs> you know, and the whips. And, and you think, oh, it's all right. Really, I, I can manage. Thank you very much. You're so kind to offer. But you, I'm sure you have a long drive. I, I'll, I'll be fine. <laughs> and, and, and because... That, that method, yes, it may work, but it would violate safety always comes first. Mm. So I can't use it. You know, the principles are I love so that. powerful. There you go, everyone. We've, we've just got our, yes, it violates the safety principles. Now we know why we feel so bad about it. Because the amount of times we say, oh, okay, thanks for your help, instead of standing up and, and creating that boundary and going, no, I've got this. Now you know why. It's for safety reasons. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So, if, you know, if you keep going back to your, your core principles and your core underlying belief systems, you'll be a great guardian for your horse. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we hear these stories of people who jumped in at the level of methods, which is where we, most of us jump in. So out of your belief system and out of your principles evolves the, the how-to's. The, the teaching strategies, the, the, the techniques, the tools. How am I going to get this horse to uh, 
do, you know, you fill in the blank. Well, most of us, we're, we tend to be very outcome driven. You know, I want my horse to be, to load onto the trailer. I want to ride. I want, you know, we're outcome oriented instead of being process oriented. So we jump in often at the level of, uh, of the methods, the how to's and you can get into a lot of trouble doing that because, you know, you can think, you can at first think, oh, this, this is fine. This is fine. And then we all, you know, at every clinic, when I get hear the, the background stories of people, there will be people who, who are saying, you know, and then uh, the instructor told me to get, you know, that I needed to get tougher with my horse because he wasn't doing what I was asking him to do. And so I did that and then I couldn't sleep at night and that's no good. Um, so, but if you stay really grounded in your core principles and your belief system, what that does is it allows you then to look around and say, that trainer over there, I know his belief system is very different from mine. He's not a sentimental trainer. I can hear it in his words. I can hear it in the way he refers to that chestnut mare instead of calling that beautiful horse by her name. Mm. You know, I can hear it. I can hear the belief system revealed in the words that are used. And so, but there's a skill that he has that I need to learn. Or, you know, or... I'm learning how to ride. Maybe it's something um, I, I want to learn how to ride uh, flying changes, let's say. And so I need to feel a horse who knows how to do changes, who can move my body and can teach me. But I know that I'm not going to go to this trainer to absorb hook, line, and sinker, everything that this person has to teach, because... I can see that the belief system is just not a match with my own. Mm -hmm. And so rather than fight against that and make that person wrong, because they're not wrong, they're, they're consistent with their own belief system. They're not wrong, but they have things that I could learn from. So let me go in and learn those pieces, but know that I need to be very protective of myself and my horses so that I can stay true to my core belief system. And when you find a trainer or a training method that matches up with your core belief system, then it's heaven. I mean, that's what happened when I stumbled across clicker training, that it was just such a perfect match. You know, it was clicker training, in a sense, it lets you be Dr. Doolittle. You can talk to your horses mm -hmm. and they can talk back. Uh, you know, it's a, so it becomes, it becomes a true conversation that the the behaviors that we teach them become the part of the vocabulary so that it i'm not telling my horses what to do i'm inviting i'm asking we're having a conversation it's a it's a lovely lovely relationship Mm, beautiful. So tell me more about that moment when you, because you were doing the three forms of horsemanship beforehand, and then did you attend a, a show at a 
sea park or something. No, no. A friend of mine who, who bred and trained Irish wolfhounds, uh, we were having lunch together. And as people who are interested in training do, we were talking about training. And she said in this sort of offhand way, but of course you've read Karen Pryor's Don't Shoot the Dog. And at that stage, I had not even heard of Karen Pryor or Don't Shoot the Dog. But Karen Pryor was, uh, she and her husband founded Sea Life Park in the late 50s, ran through the early 60s. And Karen was, uh, she was the one that really figured out how to use the work that was coming out of B.F. Skinner's labs to train their dolphins because it, you know, it hadn't been done before. Um, the marine mammal uh, shows were something that was brand new at that stage. And so they didn't really know how to train them. They, at first they hired some circus trainers thinking that that was maybe the way to go. And the circus trainers get, get a couple of very simple tricks, but mostly what the dolphins did is they trained the trainers to feed them fish, yeah. um, but they didn't get very far. So, so Karen really, she was a, a, a real pioneer in this work. And in the mid 1980s, I think Don't Shoot the Dog originally was published in 1984. And it's not a training book per se. It's a description, it's a, of operant conditioning. It's, it explains, introduces the, um, the whole field of, to us, to, to lay people, to trainers, uh, to parents, to anybody who's, who's, who's interested in behavior, uh, the field of behavioral analysis, but in a very approachable, readable way. And so my, my friend said, but of course you've read Don't Shoot the Dog. And I've always thought, well, if Karen had called it Don't Shoot the Horse, the horse people would have gotten clicker training before the dog community. But it went into the dog world before, it, uh, before we brought it into the horse world. Mm -hmm. She said it in such a way that, that I uh, tracked down a copy, read it, and loved it because my background was in behavior. So, uh, you know, I really, it really resonated with me. There was so much in it that uh, I, I understood. I went through it going, oh, of course, you know, that's why, you know, the, the horse does this or this person behaves in that way. But the, the chapter on punishment really, really stood out for me because traditional horse training is so punishment-based. It's so correction-based. You know, if the animal doesn't, the horse doesn't respond promptly enough, we escalate. Yeah. Uh, the horse does something that we don't like, there's a, a, an aversive con consequence. It's a, you know, that forms the core of much of the horse training that I was seeing uh, at that time. And Karen wrote about the problems with punishment. And that, that you always get negative side effects when you use punishment, such as tension, uh, avoidance. You know, they, yes, you may, uh, you may punish the horse and smack the horse for biting at you and the biting stops, but 
it's unpredictable. It, it may stop for the moment, but then it may come back or it may come back in, uh, expressed in other ways. So you, you may have stopped the biting, but now your horse is hard to catch. You know, you're yeah. spending 40 minutes trying to get near your horse out in the field. So, so she was really describing the, the problems with punishment. And I thought, oh, we in the horse world really need to know this. And little did I know that I was going to be the one who was going to be writing so much about it. But I was also very curious about the clicker training that she talked about, but really didn't describe it any depth in, in Don't Shoot the Dog. But she wrote another book called Lads Before the Wind, which was a diary of her time at Sea Life Park. It's a great read because it really gives you a sense of, of how trainers think you know, the problem solving, the puzzle solving, uh, how a trainer's mind works. And it's a, it's a great read. And I read that with fascination. And it still wasn't really a how-to. And then um, my friend lent me an article on something completely different. I don't even know what the article was about. But down in the very corner of the page was a little tiny, you know, one of those quarter-inch advertisements for... Uh, video uh, VHS. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Video uh, oh, that Karen, that. yes, that Karen had produced with Gary Wilkes, who was a canine behaviorist, and they had teamed up to do some seminars for the dog community. So I sent away for that, um, and there was mostly it was just um, there. They they filmed it during a seminar, so there was a lot of just a lot of talking, basically. But then there were two things that really just ignited my imagination. One was Gary was were, did a demo of a 12-week-old Mastiff puppy. And he taught this puppy using a, basically a food lure to um, sit and then to lie down and then to stay down while he walked around this puppy. And he did it in a matter of minutes, and he never touched the dog. And I just was fascinated by that. Now, these days, this is like, well, that's so um, commonplace, so ordinary if you're in the clicker training community. Mm. But at that time, it was, I'd never seen dog training like that. Um, the dog training that, that I had seen in, at that stage uh, was all very much uh, push, pull, jerk, you know, very um, do it to the dog. It wasn't having the dog parti- participate in any, it was, it was much rougher, let's say. Mm. And so that really intrigued me. And then they showed a video from the San Diego Zoo, a pilot program that was done in 1989. And Gary Priest, who was the director of training, was narrating it. And they were showing an African bull elephant. And this elephant was very aggressive towards his keepers. And so the decision had been made that for that no one could go into his enclosure uh, for any reason. And so for 10 years, this elephant had had no foot care. And they were very concerned about this because... You know, in the wild, the elephants would be walking and wearing down the, the, the foot pads, just like our horses in the wild would take care of their own foot care. Mm. But 
we all know who in those of us who have horses, we know that that's not what happens with our uh, with the horses that are under our care. We have to provide foot care. So the same concerns were for this elephant, but magnified because because of his weight. If he had gotten an abscess, that could have been life threatening. Mm. So they decided to do a pilot program using clicker training and. They used, uh, they, they, in the gate of his enclosure, they built two, they built a couple little windows, just small little openings, big enough for him to put his foot up and sort of get his toe out through the window, but that's as far. And then a big slit where they could have him, uh, where they could have him line up and they could draw his ear through the slit and they could do blood draws um, uh, through with the protective contact of the gate. And so they used targets. They taught him to orient to a target. Sort of funny, I'm sitting here reaching my hand out, holding up a target, but none of you can see it, of course. But in any event, you can all imagine. So they had these long fiberglass poles with a, a sort of foam target at the end of it. And they taught this elephant to orient to the target. And it took a while because A, they they were brand new to this technology. And B, this elephant had no, had no history of learning. So he, he frustrated really easily. And, and it, was, it was slow going. But eventually, they got him so that he could uh, follow the target and orient his body up to the gate and put his foot up through the enclosure where the keepers had access to it, but there was protective contact and they could do the trim. And they showed on this video, they showed uh, him, the elephant orientate turning and backing to the gate and lifting his hind foot up through the, the enclosure for his first foot trim in 10 years. Wow. And Gary stood there and said, I can't express to you enough how aggressive this elephant was, is actually. And he's doing all of this for the social attention and a bucket of food treats. And I looked at that and I thought, we in the horse world have a lot to learn. Mm. Because we all know, you know, what would happen if a horse is saying no to foot care? It's the three men and a boy and a chain over the nose to get the job done. So we in the horse world had a lot to learn. And, and, but those, those images were enough for me to go out to the barn to experiment. So I got a clicker, I got treats. Um, my, my horse at the time was laid up with uh, foot abscesses, oddly enough, foot abscesses in both front feet. So he couldn't walk. Uh, there was, and, and he was a very fit horse who was used to 24-7 turnout. And here he was confined because of the abscesses. And I wanted to do something to keep his, his mind engaged. And so I thought, great, great opportunity to explore clicker training. And I went out with, uh, to the barn. He couldn't walk, so there wasn't, what am I going to ask him to do? And what he could do was orient to a target. So I, you know, I looked around the barn for something handy, and I, I used a dressage whip because um, that was handy. And, and he, 
you know, he was has never been uh, you the the whips had not ever been used harshly. So it, for him, it was a neutral object, and he oriented to it. I clicked, I reinforced him. He thought it was a cool game. I thought it was a cool game, and as he became more uh, uh, comfortable and could start to do more, I just started reshaping everything that I had ever taught him. And he had quite a large repertoire. So as he came back into work, I was drawing on this background that I had, drawing on all the things that, that I had taught him. And he was, he's, um, he was a fascinating horse to be the pioneer the sort of that that first horse into clicker training because he knew a great deal but he had a lot of behavioral issues because both of his stifles locked and they locked hard and fast and they had locked all of his life they had locked basically since birth um and so the 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 that locking of the stifles had created enormous challenges in his training. So I had a horse who was mobilized into Piaf, who understood lateral work, but who also um, could blast out of my hand because in order to relieve the pressure on his stifles when they locked, he would need to um, blast forward to get them to release. Mm. And so I had enormous behavioral issues in a very, this sort of odd paradox of this really well-trained horse who was at times um, very, very dangerous to be around because of a physical issue. Yeah. And what was so interesting, so he was eight years old at that time and his stifles had been locking for eight years. And through the winter, I reshaped everything that I had ever taught him, including uh, the Spanish walk. And he really started to own the work that he was, that I was showing him. And he started to really organize his own body and his stifle stopped locking. And that's when I really got interested because what it showed me was clicker training was much more than a training method. You know, much more than just another way to teach a horse to pick up its feet or to get him on a trailer. That clicker training really reaches deep, deep into the animal's mind. And so you are not just teaching a behavior, teaching a set of skills. You're, you're doing something that's much more profound than that. And to see this transformation in a horse that um, I had known since birth was really astounding to me. And so I've stayed, I've stayed curious and interested and really um, hooked on clicker training ever since because I just, um, I just keep seeing these just amazing changes in horses and the and and connections and relationships in horses that we are reaching deep to them and they can reach back to us and it's really it's just really neat 
Mm. Can you explain that a little bit more? I know what you mean by you reach deep, but can you really explain that for listeners to to really understand? Because I think it's it's so important to understand. Ah. Uh. How do you explain it? How do you explain um, unexplained? Yes, how do you see and feel right, in your body? Right, right, <laughs> right. How do you explain some of these things? Mm. And because first, you know, everyone will say, Oh, I have a great relationship with my horse. Mm-hmm. And who are we to, you know, judge somebody else's relationship? You know, it's uh, what I know is that the relationships that I had with horses before clicker training were nothing compared to the relationships that I have with clicker training. And I guess one of the ways of talking about it, and I don't know whether, I don't know whether I can make this clear or not, but we'll try. We'll have a go. So um, we're, 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 we're a vertebrate, you know, we have like, so we, which means we have a, a backbone spine and you know that, uh, it's going to sound really odd. Um, one of the things that we do is we protect our spine, really. You know, so if somebody comes up uh, and starts to reach for your neck with their hands, mm-hmm. we are going to you're you're going to get very tight and very tense. Mm-hmm. You have to protect your spine, um, and that's true whether you are human, a dog, a horse. We protect our spines, um, and so when you when you are approaching a horse with uh, a method that is somewhat um, aversive, there's going to be a part of them that keeps you on the outside. So even if they get soft, they're going to keep you out. They're going to keep you on the outside of them because they have to protect themselves. They have to protect their spine. So you may be sliding down a lead or sliding down a rein, and they may be complying, but they'll be keeping you out in some way so that they are, to the best of their ability, keeping you from hurting them, keeping you from hurting their core. But when you gain their confidence, that when you slide down a lead, when you reach out to touch them, that it is with kindness, that it is to communicate, and that you are explaining, not demanding. They start to let you in. And when they let you in, and they let you into their spine, and they let you into their core and they let you into your their heart then it is a relationship like no other that's when you become uh like the centaur you know when you ride and it feels truly like you are uh, two nervous systems joined wow i got that i felt it in my body that was beautifully yeah. explained. Thank you. Yeah. What? I, I, don't, I don't know if that, you know, I don't, I think that relates if you have a framework for 
connecting to it. Otherwise, it may just sound like nice words, but it certainly gives you something to search for. Mm. I think you know, years ago, when I was uh, studying with Linda Tellington Jones, and this was a long time ago, uh, and she was showing me some of the uh, hand movements that you that you do in her body work. And so she was, uh, she was standing behind me and with her hands, she moved her hands along my back in one way and that felt okay. And then she moved her hands in a different way and it felt just enormously different and so much better. And I turned to her and I said, Linda, what did you just do? And she said, well, I breathed up through my feet. And I thought, okay, that sounds just lovely but i don't know what that means i don't know how you do that because at that time um when when i was little i always had hay fever and so i you know i was always congested i was always stuffy and so my breath you know stayed didn't even get down in my lungs is how it felt like and so and and besides which i'm a biologist so i know that you you breathe with your lungs you don't breathe with your feet my goodness Uh, um yeah so so those words didn't mean anything to me but i knew that they meant something to linda so i went in search of what it means to breathe up from your feet and i now know what it means not only to breathe up from your feet, but to breathe up through the ground. And, and so those words very much have meaning for me. And so what I would say is, if, if when you're listening to this and you think, I don't know what it means to have a horse let me in. I don't know what it means to have a horse let me into their spine. But it sounds like a wonderful thing to have happen. Then you start going in search of, what it would be like to have a horse let you in. What are the processes? What are the things that, that, uh, that you could learn that would take you to a deeper understanding of those words? Beautiful. Yeah, imagine if we all just breathed from our feet before we went to see our horses, like even just walked into their paddock or their field or their stable or stall, whatever. Yeah. Even that would just make a change. Yes, because that's that would put us into uh, horse time and horse space. Yeah. That, that whole jangle of the world, to just take that moment to let the jangle of the world drop away and... And as it drops away, then you step out of that into the being that you are that connects to horses. Yeah, wow. Another of our small business subscribers for this podcast is the Heart Horse Box. Heart Horse was created by friends Teaster and Charlotte, who found a beautiful spot to place themselves in the horse business world. They have created a safe online community environment outside the noisy world of social media where you can dive in and speak openly with heart-minded, conscious horse people of all disciplines and breeds. This membership includes live seminars and classes from equine experts from all areas of the equestrian world. They also have the beautiful Heart Horse Box subscription. I do love this one as it's centred around you the conscious horse person, receiving nourishing gifts for you 
as Heart Horse understand that you are already taking amazing care of your horse and they want to make sure you are doing the same for yourself. I am thrilled to let you know that if you go to hearthorsebox.com and use the code Eden River, you will receive a 25% discount on your first month of the Heart Horse Community Membership. And that one is international. That's one for everyone in the world. You may also like to check out their Heart Horse podcast. It's another great free resource from the Heart Horse team. You may even find the episode where I was a guest on their podcast talking about my life with horses and how this podcast and the Conscious Horse Movement came about. The links are also in the show notes. What's the biggest change you've seen in the horse world in training um, since you started back in 1993 with clicker training? Uh, I don't know that I really have an answer to that because um, my focus is very much on the clicker training world mm -hmm. and I don't really look I don't look that much outside of that nice little bubble to really see what's going on in general in the horse world mm -hmm. I would say in in general I think there has been a shift towards uh, being a little softer and kinder towards horses but I also know that everything exists out there you know that that uh, that there are harsh trainers harsh methods you know they're out there if you if you want to find them but I would I would say that there has there's probably been a shift towards acknowledging that um, that horses are our friends, our family, and that we were looking for training methods that are a little bit softer, a little bit kinder. So I, I would say that that's a general impression. Mm. Um, and, you know, in terms of, uh, is it, has it changed? I think we're, we are more educated. And I think um, when I, Going back to when I was really just starting out, there the there was if you got together all the popular books on horse training, they would fill one corner of a small bookshelf, and now you know they they cover there are so many more books and and we know so much more about nutrition. You know we like we understand that. Uh, so much more about the horse's digestive system, and that's huge. That is that is huge. You know that you can't feed horses twice a day and feed them a big grain meal. That that's not how their digestive system works. That's that's huge. We know so much more about feet. Um, so I would say that uh, one of the biggest changes is that of education. That that we have access to so much more, which means that you really can choose some training methods and, uh, and the way you want to care for your horse. You really can make it uh, a choice that fits your belief system because we, 
the, the access to the information is so much more available and and so much it's so much easier to access and and learn more about horses mm. yeah just that change alone isn't it we're open to the world now i mean look we're sitting yeah. on opposite sides of the world having a conversation Absolutely. I was, I was just thinking before in 1993, you said when you found Karen Pryor's work, it, that's when I was graduating high school and it's like, you know, and the internet was literally just, just entering the world back in 1993. It still yeah. wasn't actually being used. And I was just thinking, imagine how different my life would have been had I been given that book back then. And it's, it's really interesting. So, um, so just the fact that we're able to sit here and listen to this podcast is just an extraordinary thing and have a conversation and share information across the world is amazing. Yes. That, and, and information is the key. Mm. You know, I think that really is uh, because that then creates choice. Yes. You know, everything Everything's going to be out there. There's a lovely metaphor of um, that goes, you know, that um, it was probably around 1993. If you went to the grocery store, into the produce section, you would see two or three kinds of apples. There'd be the Macintosh, yes, the Red Delicious, and um, uh, maybe one other kind of, of apple. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now you go to the grocery store and there there are 15 different kinds of apples. It's just, it's just delightful. And so, but the people who really love, I don't like Macintosh apples. They're, they're too soft. I don't like them. Um, But the people who love Macintosh apples do not need to feel threatened because there are now 12 other apples in the produce section. The Macintosh apples are still there. And these other 12 apples are not going to suddenly jump off the shelf into their cart. They have to put them into their cart. So the same thing applies in the horse training world that in 1993, uh, in my area, and that's really all I can speak to at that time, in my area, you know, the training methods that the, the instructors who were available locally were all, uh, traditional trainers they relied a lot on what they had sort of the apprenticeship type of system what they had learned from the person who taught them uh and the person who taught them and so on and but there was no real science behind it there was nothing uh that was testable it was just well this is the way it's always been done yeah. Um, and sometimes it, that's good. Sometimes the way it's always been done is a good way of doing it. And sometimes the way it's always been done may not be the best way, but still. So that's, that's how, how things were passed on. And now we have so many more choices. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are tough training methods out there there are really soft, kind training methods out there, just like there are all these apples in the grocery store. And so I can pick and choose. And, and that, I think, is a really good thing, that, uh, that when you say what's one of the biggest changes, I would say one of the biggest cho- changes is the amount of choice that is on offer. Of course, with that brings just that other thing of, well, how do I choose? 
you know, how do I choose? There's so much and there's so much to learn. And, and I guess that goes back to the start of the conversation of really first become grounded and aware of what your core belief system is. Yeah, that's how do the most you, how, important part. Yeah, how do you feel about animals? Is it is it that you want to win the ribbons? I mean, the winning the ribbons is great, but at the expense of your horse, maybe not. So you know where, what is what sits there at the core, and and then make your choices um, based on that. Yeah. And that'll put you on a path because what will begin to happen is, you know, you start down one path and you'll encounter like-minded people and they'll share with you, oh, you know, I heard of this great book you should read. Or, you know, um, the uh, I know you're looking for a farrier and I've got just a great farrier. She's so kind to the horses. And you just keep finding more things that are a match with what you like um, as you stay, you know, if you begin with that as your core of how, what will let me sleep at night? Yeah. And, and, um, and how do I really want to be with the animals that are in my life? What, what, what is, how, how do I view them? Mm-hmm. Um, are, is this, just a a tool or is it is is my horse truly my friend um big differences yeah absolutely and once you get under saddle um do you okay so a while ago i interviewed pet professor paul mcgreevy from the equitation science institute here in australia and he's done some extraordinary work and his team are amazing they've actually just um, scientifically proven two things about whips. One, um, they're not needed to make a horse go faster in horse racing. And two, that horses have exact same sensitivity um, as humans when it comes to being whipped. So when you whip a horse, it feels exactly the same as it would if you were being whipped yourself. So they've done some amazing, amazing work. Um, in my interview with him, he talked about, because they use a, a mix of both positive and negative reinforcement and they're knowing when they're using each and, and you know, they're basing it all on science. And he says that when you were under saddle, and this is a while ago, I'm going from memory and a lot's happened since then. So I may get it all wrong. So excuse me if I do, but he basically said under saddle, you can't use positive reinforcement as much because you don't get the forward movement. And I know you're the person to talk right. to. Well, that. he's wrong. <laughs> I knew that. I just didn't know why. <laughs> so, um, I mean, how about how's that for being blunt? All right. So, so let's go. Let's go back because riding is just groundwork where you get to sit down, mm-hmm. and groundwork is riding where you get to stand up. So, there we're not talking two different systems, and and it's not so it works fine on the ground but not under saddle. So, if we're looking at uh, riding we are looking at a tactile communication system. So we use pressure and release of pressure. That's just a, um, a, a operationally how it works. Pressure and release of pressure. I shift my balance that uh, I uh, 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 close my leg. I use a rein. It's all pressure and release of pressure. It's a tactile cue. 
I put my hand on the ground, I can put my hand on the horse's chest, and my horse um, backs up. It's a tactile cue. The question is not, do I use tactile cues? The question is, how did I teach them? That's what makes the difference. So let's take um, teaching a horse to back up. And whether you're, you're putting your hand on the horse or you are taking the slack out of the lead, it, it's, the same, it's the same difference. So I'm going to, to use what I refer to as shaping on a point of contact, which means that I'm going to take, let's, let's say we're using a lead, I'm going to take the slack out of the lead and I'm going to use my body orientation. So my body language is part of this. The uh, position, my position relative to the horse, they're all, it's, it, it's all part of it. And I'm creating a request. So it's an invitation to back up. But let's say my horse doesn't understand the invitation yet. He's aware that my hand is, is on the lead. He's aware that uh, I'm orienting, uh, facing him so that uh, it's like the front door is closed because of my body position, but he's not backing up. Well, I could escalate. I could make the signal stronger. I could get louder. I could do other things. I could uh, wave my hand. I could I could grumble at him uh, until that um, signal became a little uh, scarier, let's say, and my horse backs up. And then I could release the pressure. And so what my horse would learn is avoidance. Well, you know, if I, if I don't want the discomfort and the fear of the swinging lead rope, then I'll just back up. And then the handler can just whisper because the underlying threat is there. You know, mm. The horse knows that if, oh, if I don't back up promptly enough, she'll, she'll escalate. Well, that's what I want to avoid in my training. So in the shaping on a point of contact, I've gone to this, this place where I've made my request and I wait. And, and I, I can wait for the tiniest of little responses. Suppose my, my horse, as I'm waiting, takes a breath and I feel his balance just shift ever so slightly back because I'm very balanced and soft in my response, or my request. It invites that little shift back. And as I feel that, I can click and release the lead. And then I can ask again. And what will start to happen is my horse will understand that that little feel, if he takes a step back, he's going to get he's going to get reinforced for that. He's going to get something that he really likes. And so what he's so I'm using pressure and release of pressure, but I'm keeping it at the level of information, not of fear, not of threat. And so when I get under saddle and I close my leg, it's, it's understood as information. It's information that helps my horse get to his reinforcement faster. 
it's a clue that he can use to say, what does my person want me to do? Oh, if I step off into a walk, uh, she'll, she'll be delighted and, and that's going to lead to clicks and treats. So that's what I'll do. So I absolutely can use positive reinforcement under saddle. Um, and, and what I am teaching my horses is how to respond to the, uh, you know, the, the tools that we use. So as a, as a rider, I don't have to throw everything that I've ever learned about riding away in order to use clicker training under saddle. But what I'm going to avoid using is the escalating pressure. So anytime in my training I get to a point where I feel as though I need to get louder, get sharper, that should be a cue to me to take a deep breath and say, oh, I'm missing something. I'm missing a, a step. I need to break my training down into smaller steps. I'm missing a component, you know, that, that this complex behavior that I'm working on, there are many component skills that go into this behavior. And I'm missing one of them because if, if I had taught it well, my horse would be responding right now. So let me go have a cup of tea, think about my training, and then come back and teach the underlying components. And then I'll get the response that I'm looking for. So we, instead of escalating, we, um, we take that as the cue to look at the training in smaller steps and to teach the underlying components. And so how would you teach that for forward movement whilst riding? Well, I would probably begin on the ground. So, you know, I, I don't generally, generally every question uh, takes you back several steps. Mm. So uh, you, you'd go back several steps. So let's go back to the very first lesson that I generally teach horses. So there are six foundation lessons that I teach in the clicker training. And they are backing, head lowering, what I refer to as the grown-ups are talking, please don't interrupt, which is your horse can stand in stillness next to you with his head between his shoulders, even with your pockets full of treats. Mm -hmm. um, standing on a mat, happy faces, which is ears forward, a nice relaxed expression. Um, what am I leaving out? Uh, head lowering. Tar oh, targeting. Okay, I think that's six. And they're, they're, it's not a... This is the order in which I teach things. It's not a checklist. Yes, my horse targeted once. I'm done with that. Now let me get to the fun stuff. These are behaviors that uh, are your building blocks. Mm -hmm. They give you the component skills that let you teach other things. So there are three phases to clicker training. The first phase, you're going to introduce your horse to the clicker so that he understands how to use the... Uh, the marker signal, the information that the click provides. You are um, introducing the use of food as a reinforcer. So you're uh, building good manners around that. You're, you as a handler are learning how to build duration, how to chain behaviors together into longer sequences. The, the foundation behaviors really teach you how clicker training works. And 
the end result is a horse who has just really pleasant, good ground manners, a horse that's, that's very safe and very pleasant to be around. And then you use the clicker training to teach what I refer to as the universals. These are the things that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether you ride English and somebody else rides Western or you want to ride dressage in an arena and this other person wants to be out in the back country or you don't even want to ride. It doesn't matter. They're, these are things that we all need to do to teach our horses, things such as um, uh, grooming manners and uh, foot care, uh, haltering, leading, just basic leading. Um, all the, the husbandry things, accepting fly spray, putting on a fly mask, blanketing, um, medical care, that, that would all sit within the universals. And then, um, and then you move from, and, and you would use the foundation lessons to help you teach the universals. So for example, one of the foundation lessons is you, you teach horses to stand on mats, to go to a mat, to stand on a mat, to stay on a mat. Well, that's really handy if you want to teach grooming, if you want to teach saddling, if you would like your horse to stand still while you treat a wound. You know, staying, staying on a mat is a great skill to have. Um, head lowering, great skill to have, especially if you have a really tall horse and you want to put a bridle on um, or get a blanket over his head. You know, so, so the foundation lessons are key to teaching so many other things. And then... From there, it's just so easy to move into performance work. So the, the way that I t like to introduce the horses to a clicker is I'll use protective contact. So just like that elephant at the zoo where they had a barrier between the elephant and the person, I like to start with a barrier. And what that does is it creates safety. So if you have a horse that gets really excited by the food, uh, you can just step back out of range. If you have a horse that's had a history of very confused handling or very rough handling, um, sometimes they they might become uh, they might become aggressive. Um, you just you don't know. So and the protective contact it works both ways. It also gives the horse a lot of security and that there's a barrier. So if he makes a mistake, he knows that I can't get in and get after him. So it's a great confidence builder for the horse and the handler. And it, um, it gives the horse choice. So he can walk away and ignore me, or he can come to uh, the front of his stall or the gate of his paddock, wherever you're working and interact with, with you. My favorite setup is a stall with a simple stall guard across the door so that the horse can have his head come into my space and I can lean across the stall guard into his, but there is that barrier. And it just helps me to be non-reactive to unwanted behavior. Mm -hmm. Meaning if my horse does start to mug my pockets, I can just step back out of the way instead of needing, feeling like I need to correct that unwanted behavior. So I don't want to start out clicker training by correcting my horse. So I'm going to hold the target out and my horse is going to come forward to touch the target. He's going to reach out with his nose and he's going to orient to the target. And I'm going to click, take the target down so it's out of play, out of sight. 
And as I do that, I'm going to reach into my pocket and I'm going to feed my horse a treat. If I'm on the left side of my horse, I'm going to feed my horse with my left hand. Now that's going to become really important in a couple minutes. So, and, and I'll do a couple, I'll do several rounds of that. And in that first round, I will have put just a handful of treats in my pockets. I, I have people count out 20 treats and put those in their pocket. So that forces them to step away from the horse to refill their pocket. They come back, they hold the target out again, they do another round. And we train with what's called loopy training. So we get the behavior, you click, you treat, you ask for the behavior again. It's a, it's a loop. And the mantra of loopy training is, when a loop is clean, you get to move on. And not only do you get to move on, but you should move on. So it, it helps you to know when to change the criteria. So my horse is now coming up, he's touching the target, I click, and I give him the food, and, and everything is, is, is as I would like it. There's no unwanted behavior there. So I need to move on a little bit. Well, one way I could move on is by when I click, I can reach into my pocket and I can turn towards my horse and extend my hand out past the stall guard. So he has to take a step back in order to get the food. And I'm not pushing him back. I'm not shoving him back. It's almost as though there was a food bucket hanging on just on the other side of the stall guard that I'm dropping the food into. And he's going to read that body language and he's going to back up. And then I'm going to rotate my body and hold the target out so he comes forward. And I'll click as he orients to the target. And then I'll reach into my pocket. And as I'm reaching into my pocket, I turn and extend my arms so my horse takes a step or two back. And so what he's learning is the body language of liberty work and the body language of leading and, and lunging and basically anything you would want to do on the ground that I can open the front door by rotating my body as I'm, and that's when I'm presenting the target forward, it's almost like you, you picture a central rod going through your body from the top of your head down and you're just rotating around that, that central rod. And so I can rotate and open the front door and invite my horse forward, or I can rotate and close the front door and invite my horse to back up. Mm -hmm. And so I can take that core body language and, and step into his stall with him or into his paddock with him and, and then use that to teach basic liberty work. Can you walk forward with me? Can you stop and take a step or two back? And can you come to a standstill? I can attach a lead and using that core body language, begin to introduce him to the communication system of the lead. And so as he learns that, the communication, the cues, the requests to, I would like you to go forward now, he's learning those. And so when I get under saddle, I'm carrying all of that with me to the written work. And, and so he's, he's going to already know 
how to respond to go forward cues. And I can add other things in. I can put targets out so we go forward to targets. I can put mats out so we go from mat to mat to mat. There are lots of strategies that we can use that encourage forward movement and, and that really teach that lovely let's go forward. And then I have to um, think about one of the core training principles, which is for every behavior you teach, there is an opposite behavior you must teach to keep things in balance. So if I teach my horse to go forward, I want to remember to also teach him to, um, to stop. Mm. That's, that's always useful. Yes, most yes. definitely. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's, clicker training is a program. So for me, it's not a, you know, you can use it as a tool. Yeah. You could say, oh, you know, I have a horse who doesn't know how to pick up his feet, so I'm going to use the clicker training to teach my horse to pick up his feet. So you can use it as a sort of a one-off tool and then go back to what I would call business as usual. You can use it to, to what I refer to as sugarcoating, same old, same old, uh, meaning uh, I'm going to use what I know, uh, and when my horse responds in the way that I want, I'm going to click and treat. So I might um, use a, a crude example. I might uh, bump him with my legs. And when he walks forward, I'll click and reinforce it. So he knows that uh, that, that bump of the leg uh, leads to him getting a goodie. And so maybe he'll be more uh, responsive to, to my leg. And, and, and I say that, you know, we're reinforcing, we're using it we're sugar, we're basically sugarcoating same old, same old. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like I'm sort of disparaging that, but I'm not. When I think about taking a pill, I would much rather swallow a sugar-coated pill than one that's just the bitter medicine inside. Yes. So, um, and if, you know, it's a great way to, to get your feet wet in clicker training that, you know, if you are, if you been around horses you have you have skills you know, you, you know how to ride you know you you know what you've learned and so rather than just throwing all of that away you can begin by piggybacking the yes answer signal of the click onto what you already know and then as you begin to explore it you'll explore some of these other teaching strategies some of the being able to free shape behavior using targeting, you know, this rich world that clicker training uh, includes. But for me, when I think of clicker training, for me, it is a very organized, very systematic, very detailed training process that takes you layer by layer by layer, because what we want to be is constructional. So the clicker training as I teach it, as I think about it, it is what is referred to as constructional training. So we are looking at uh, the underlying component skills of a complex behavior, and we are teaching those skills first. And so you are teaching a skill before you use a skill. So for example, if I want my horse to walk up to a mounting block and stand next to a mounting block while I get on, think of all the components, all the, the underlying assumptions that we're making 
about what that horse understands when we ask a horse to walk up to a mounting block. You know, just beginning with, does he even know how to stand still anywhere, never mind next to um, a wooden box? Mm. You know, so, uh, so what we're doing with the clicker training is we are really looking at all of those component skills, those underlying component skills and learning how to tease a behavior apart into those components. And we teach those first. Mm, wonderful. You know, I've, I've interviewed many a um, positive reinforcement or clicker trainer and um, your ability to break it down and teach it in a way that is so easily understandable is amazing. Like it's, um, yeah, I don't know if it's years of practice or just your ability to teach and, and lay the foundations. Um, you know, you've, you've been clicker training us almost um, because I ask a simple question, but you take us back and you show how and why. And there's a lot of times where people um, are very negative about clicker training because they say it doesn't work. My horse becomes this and uh, quite aggressive. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not the clicker training. That's our misunderstanding of the use of it. And you've just explained why, because I asked a question about forward movement and you took me back to, right. to where it begins and that that is the key i believe to to using clicker training and having it be successful yes absolutely you know when somebody i i always get a chuckle out of that when people say oh clicker training it doesn't work and i think oh you know who are you to to to, to deny my yeah. you know somebody else's reality i don't know i've just seen so too many horses just succeed magnificently to yeah. say that but but there are lots of like any training method there are pitfalls there are things that there's you know you leave out too many steps and you'll get a mess yes. it's like baking you leave out too many steps in making the cake you leave out key ingredient and what you end up with is something that's not edible yeah so you know there are steps and there's a process. So if you do, you know, if you do want to just jump in with both feet, that's that's fine. And then you discover, oh, my horse is really starting to mug me. Okay, there's a a way of going back and and starting over and doing it more systematically that will resolve that. You're better off though. The cleaner you can be in your initial training, the the fewer problems you'll have down the road. Yeah. Because because nothing is ever erased. You know, mm -hmm. horses don't, they don't, they we don't, we don't unlearn and forget things. So under stress, under the right conditions, um, learned behaviors will reappear. You think about, oh, classic example of that. So we're recording this, I don't know when this will be uh, actually uh, when you're actually going to be publishing it, but we're recording this right before uh, here in the States, the Thanksgiving holiday. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that lots of people with the coronavirus, they're trying to discourage this, but lots of people are going to be getting together for their family holiday. So you have all these grown up people who are getting back, going back to their family home, back to visit their parents with their siblings. And all of a sudden they find, and these are professional people, grown up people who all of a sudden find themselves acting like six year olds <laughs> and, and having the most horrific squabbles because under the right conditions, yeah. behavior will reoccur. 
will, will resurface. Yes. So the same thing happens with our horses. So the cleaner you can make the, the training in the first place. If I start with protective contact, so I really reduce the amount of, of let me investigate your pockets and see if I can, if you're an open salad buffet, then the less that behavior is in repertoire. And, and, and so there is a, there's, there's a very systematic structured way of getting you through the initial phases of clicker training successfully so that you can really have fun with it and you can be creative with it. Mm, yeah. I love that. You've given so many gems today. Amazing. 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 So, Alex, what are you up to now? How can we find you? What have you got coming up? What's going on for you? Well, uh, where you can find me, the easiest way is through my website, theclickercenter.com. Um, I also have a blog, theclickercenterblog.com. And I have a podcast, equosity.com, in which we, that's, if you think of uh, equus plus curiosity, you come up with equosity, which mm -hmm. we talk about clicker training a lot. Um, and then I've been doing, because of the virus, I've been doing a lot of virtual clinics. So, and I, that's been really fun. Um, I, last March, when the shutdown occurred, I was like, oh, what, what are we, what are we gonna do? You, you know, what's gonna happen to the clinics? And, and we, one of my clinic organizers got very bold and daring and said, let's do a virtual clinic. And I really had my doubts because horse training is so um, hands-on really, you know, and the fun of clinics is, is having a group of people getting together and, you know, and not sitting not at your computer, but we've been doing these virtual clinics and they are phenomenal and in many ways they they're the learning that comes out of them is even more powerful than being there uh directly with the horses and it has meant that i can work with people with their own horses in their home environment mm. uh, and and geography doesn't matter i'm i'm in the middle of a clinic that's spanning two weekends now uh where the, the time zone is set up to favor uh, people in the UK and Europe. So, um, uh, and, and we have people, uh, I think we've, we've got people from the UK, from Germany, from Switzerland, Finland, and anyway, just all over. And you can't do that in an actual clinic. Yeah. So that's been, that's been, and I just did a, a couple weeks ago, I did a clinic for, the Australians. I've not been to Australia yet. And, and so my first trip to Australia was through a virtual clinic and it was wow. phenomenal. So I'm definitely going to be do, visiting. I'm going to be visiting Australia some more next year Fantastic. via Zoom. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so all of that, uh, that kind of information is found on my website. And um, so that's, that's really what I've most recently been up to is figuring out the virtual clinics. They're tremendously more work than an actual, for me, because uh, there's a lot more preparation that goes into them. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're, 
they're great, but they're a lot of work. And, um, and then I also have another podcast called Horses for Future, in which we look at what horse people can do to help uh, mitigate the climate change crisis. And that's something that is for me really um, near and dear to my heart. So that's, uh, I've, I've had to take a little hiatus um, from the Horses for Future podcast because their life was just getting crazy, but I will be getting back to that soon with a new uh, series coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been, that's, that's been an important addition to everything. Yeah, you're a woman after my own heart there. I'm very passionate about it as well. And and uh, I've actually been thinking of doing an Australian version of a similar similar thing because we're a little bit different with our climates and, and grasses, yeah. et cetera, here. So I've been... But the concept is the same because, yeah, concept, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, we need the biodiversity mm. and we need to sequester carbon in the soil. Yeah. And, and we can, sequ- you know, it's by really taking care of, of the land that, you know, because the one thing that horses require is land. Yes. So horse people are stewards of a lot of acres. Yes. And, and if we start thinking about how are we caring for the land that we have stewardship over, you know, uh, are we, are we maintaining our pastures well? Uh, things like the equicentral system from Jane Myers, and you know, um, what are we, what are we, uh, what are we doing in terms of um, uh, hedgerows and mowing the verges? And I know that uh, for much of Australia, fire hazards, so we have to take that into account, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But um, are there ways that we could be contributing? by sequestering more carbon in the soil. And by doing that, we can also be uh, helping with drought conditions because uh, soil that is healthier, the water can penetrate deeper. So instead of just running off the land, it's going, it's actually being absorbed into the soil. And you know, there are just so many, so many advantages that you start learning about. And that's really what the, some of the things that, that I've been exploring in Horses for Future, because I did, this was for me a journey of discovery. Okay, I, here's the basic concept. Now, how do we go about doing it? How do mm-hmm. we go about um, uh, taking better care of the land that, that we have um, so that it's not just caring for our horses, but it's caring for the planet? And it's a win win because. We all know, you know, this, I mean, this business of having so many horses that can't go out and eat grass. Yeah. No, you can't. They can't go out on pasture. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. What in the world is going on? I mean, the, when I was growing up, they're ne- you never, you didn't encounter the colics and the laminitis and the Cushing's and so on that, that we're seeing now. So, you know, as we learn more, about what it means to have healthy pastures well we end up with healthier horses yeah so as somebody who loves their horse that's a win and then we end up sequestering more carbon in much healthier soils and that's a win and we end up with greater biodiversity and that's a huge win yeah so um 
So that's a, a definitely a direction that we yeah. all need to be looking. Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole basis of my um my business is the 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 whole the conscious horse person in every way and that is you know thinking about the land thinking about where everything you're feeding your horse is coming from where you tack everything is coming from what are we doing to the planet and how are we treating our horse and how we're treating ourselves and you know it's it's being conscious about everything because i believe that um that horses have been trying to tell us that for a long time anyway so um we may as well start listening sooner rather than later yes yes because right now uh, we're getting to the point where the planet is shouting at us. She is. <laughs> and, and that's that's not good. Mm, definitely not. Well, Alex, it's been such an extraordinary pleasure to talk to you as I knew it would be. And um, I would like to thank you for your time today, but most especially thank you for everything you've done and are going to do for the horse world and the planet. You're, um, you're extraordinary. And I'm so grateful that you're in the world doing what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. What a lovely thing to say. It was a delight today. It's always a delight to share this work. Mm. Yeah, it's good for the horses, so it's, it's great to share it. Yeah, we've just made the world a better place again. So thank you so much again for your time. You're very welcome. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.